Hi folks, how are you? Um, thank you so much for listening to another episode of my podcast, Soundtracking. Um, just to give you a kind of real life insight, it's 24 minutes past seven on Monday the 11th of October um, and we're going to get this up as quick as we possibly can. We're going to start um, launching each episode of the podcast on a Monday instead of a Friday. So I hope that doesn't cause you guys too much inconvenience, but that's just for various reasons. And we're kind of starting that today, to be honest. Uh, it's been a busy old time over the last couple of weeks. London Film Festival is in full swing and it's an annual time where we're very lucky that we absolutely take the liberty of catching up with some incredibly talented people to record interviews for future episodes of the podcast. And just over the last couple of days, um, I've recorded chats with the likes of Todd Haynes, who returns for a third visit, uh, Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson-Cairns. Now, Christy wrote 1917 with Sam Mendes, and she also co-wrote Edgar's new film with him, One Night in Soho. So I managed to get them both together to talk about that, which is great. Paolo Sorrentino, can't believe we have him on the podcast, talking about his new film, The Hand of God, as well as some of his great other films like Youth and The Great Beauty. Um, and I've just had confirmed today that tonight, so hopefully by the time you're listening to this, I'll be trying to hand Zimmer. I can't believe it. Even in the space of two weeks, he's got Bond and June coming out. Not to mention, obviously, all the other films that he scored that I love. Of course, I'm going to talk to him about Interstellar. Anyway, the latest episode of Soundtracking is a live outing for the podcast. It's been a while since we've had one of those. With a man who I've no doubt is thoroughly sick and tired of being described as a national treasure. But let's be honest, he definitely is. So Michael Palin's CV is simply way too long to run through, but we all know and love him from Monty Python, the accompanying films and his truly wonderful travelogues for the BBC. Michael was very kind enough to venture out of the safety and comfort of his home to join me and a live audience for the widescreen weekend, which takes place at the National Museum of Science and Technology in Bradford. Massive shout out to the incredible staff who not only work at the museum, but also run this fantastic festival, which is celebrating its 25th anniversary. So if you want to explore more and want to look for a brilliant place in Yorkshire to go and visit for the day, I would highly recommend it. Plenty more on that shortly, but first, some interesting information from our very good friends at View. Now, I've talked about going back to the cinema, how wonderful I found it, and I've encouraged you all to do the same if you feel safe, of course. And since cinemas reopened back in May, over a third of you have returned to watch movies on the silver screen in person. Hurrah! Now, we know this because View has carried out the biggest survey of UK cinema goers, looking at attitudes towards escapism, fulfilment and the big screen experience in our post-lockdown world. Three quarters of cinema goers say that going to the cinema is the perfect way to escape from all the other stuff life throws at us. And who doesn't want that right now? Now, we had a family trip to watch the new Bond film, No Time to Die, last weekend, and it was utterly transportative and extremely comfortable, thanks to the luxurious recliner seats in view. As well as an incredible collection of films to watch, View also brings a vast array of content to the big screen, including theatre, sport, comedy, concerts, opera and gaming. There is genuinely something for everyone. I'm off to book my tickets for my next outing uh, just down the road. In fact, Stroud View is my local cinema, which I try and get to either on my own, which I like a lot, or with my kids. 
So if you feel comfortable going back to the cinema, you'll be well looked after at View, who are showing all the films that you could wish to see in a manner that makes it as safe as is possible for you to do so. And so, to Michael Palin at the widescreen weekend in Bradford. And where else can we begin than with this? Monty Python's a flying circus. Thank you. Have a seat. You just can't say, you can't say Yorkshire's greatest man. You'll get Why into not? terrible trouble. No, well, I, was, I was voted Yorkshire's greatest man once, and I got, I got letters from Geoffrey Boycott every month for next year. <laughs> Who do you think you are? Just could you do voice? Oh. But anyway. It's so nice, to, nice a, to be up here? It's very nice to be up here. I have to say that this is odd because um, this is... The first journey outside London, where I live, as you know, for over just over two years. I've worked now two years and four... No, no, two years. The last thing I did was in Northern Ireland something. But so, you know, I haven't travelled in all that time. And um, today on the train was like sort of rediscovering my youth. Oh, well, not exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was there under the, the train, seat. You? But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I realised the joy of being able to get around and on trains again. So it's great to be here now because I, um, we have a lot of connections with Bradford, um, including the fact we did a lot of Python filming here in the very first series all those years ago, 1969. Well, I, I asked Michael to, you know, my podcast about soundtracking and we will talk about music, but I just thought it would be a lovely opportunity to, to talk about various moments throughout your career. And I asked you if there was any specific <clears throat> clips and things that you wanted me to try and dig out and, and show. And so we've got a few of those today, which are from some really diverse things as well, which is great and really kind of show the work that you've done. Um, and you emailed me kind of last minute yesterday going, oh, now, what about this one? I'm not sure you're going to be able to find it. And I did. Mm. And I'm so glad I did. And I thought it'd be a great way to start, if that's OK. So yeah. um, I'm going to ask the wonderful team, Simon and Paisley, up in the, the booth up there, if they're going to start off for me and play us this clip, first clip today. Hello. Are you uh, by any chance? Yes, that's right. Are you a hermit? Yes, I certainly am. Well, I never. <laughs> what are you getting away from? Oh, you know, the usual people chat gossip. Oh, know. I certainly do. It was the same with me. I mean, there comes a time when you realise there's no good fitting your life away in idleness and trivial chit-chat. Where's your cave? Oh, up the goat track, first on the left. Oh, they're very nice up there, aren't they? Yes, well, they are. They've got the beauty. A bit jumpy, though, aren't they? No, we've had ours insulated. Oh, yes. Yes, they use bird's nests, moss, and oak leaves around the outside. Oh, sounds marvellous. Oh, it's a treat, it really is, because otherwise those stone caves can be so grim. Yes, they really can be, can't they? They oh, really yeah. can. Yes. Morning, Frank. Uh, morning, Norman. Uh, talking of moss, uh, you know Mr. Robinson? With the uh, green loincloth? Uh, no, that's Mr. Seagrave. Uh, Mr. Robinson is the hermit who lodges with Mr. Oh, Seagrave. Is he? Yes, well, he's put me onto wattles. Really? Yes. Swears by them. Yes. 
Morning, Frank. Uh, morning, Lionel. Well, he says that moss tends to thaw off the cave wall during cold weather. You know, you might get a really bad spell and off the moss drops off the cave wall and you get cold. Oh, well, Mr. Robinson's cave's never been exactly near Varna, has well, it? Well, quite. That's what I mean. Anyway, Mr. Rogers, he's the, uh, um, on the end. Up at the oh. top, yes. Well, he tried wattles and he came out in a rash. Really? Yes, and there's me with half a wall wattled. I mean, what'll I do? Well, why don't you try bird's nest like I've done? Or else, dead bracken. Frank! Yes, Len? Can I borrow your goat? Uh, yes, that'll be all right. Oh, leave me a pint for breakfast, will you? Oh, I see it. Uh, you know, that's the trouble with living halfway up a cliff. He feels so cut off. You know, it takes me two hours every morning to get out onto the moors, collect my berries, chastise myself for two hours back in the evening. <laughs> Still, there's one thing about being a hermit, at least you meet people. Oh, yes, I wouldn't go back to public relations. <laughs> oh. oh, well, bye for now, Frank. Must have trouble. Right! You two hermits, stop that sketch. No, you're silly. What? <laughs> only was at the Cowan Calf Rocks near Bradford, but also it's, it kind of just reminds me why what Python did. Normally that sketch would have ended on, uh, I don't want to go back to public relations. Bomb, that's, that's, a, that's a punchline. Yeah. We didn't like punchlines. So it goes on, the kernel comes in and then it goes into animation. And so the, you know, there's no ending to it. You're kind of the, the show is a mosaic rather than a series of sketches. But you break that wall between, you know, and, and I love that, yes. that you get that insight as a viewer as well as to what it is like yes. behind the, you know, in terms yeah. of the, the wooden tripod stands and the cameras yeah. and you see what's going on behind. And that, I love that, that kind of thing as well, yeah. to be able to kind of see behind the scenes yeah. Yeah. like and that. And talk about things being on film. That was, uh, there was one Python sketch where he looks out the window and says, my God, we're surrounded by film. <laughs> And so they're aware that you're cutting away to film rather than the studio. Just, I'm, I'm really interested, and I, I wanted it to be today to kind of just to look at specific things. And with, and with, a, a, you know, a sketch like that, how how would it work? How many times would you would you shoot it? Would you stick to script? Would you play with it? Would you, you know, yeah. the decision to do that to keep it filming until everyone was kind of making their way back down? I mean, I thought I spotted Ringo Starr in the back there at one point as well. I was like, you know, you're kind of looking for all these people that you see <laughs> behind the camera and stuff. So how what how would that work filming that that particular sketch? Well, I mean, it, it starts with the the writing process and. Contrary to people thinking we were all on drugs all the time, um, it was actually quite a sober process. We worked it out very carefully. And we worked out very carefully what happened between the sketches. And, and so what looks like a bit of a mess and chaos has to be worked out. You've got to have the cast there, you've got to have the cameras, you've got to have the props there and everything. So, you know, although things may happen on the day which change it, it's pretty well planned. Yeah. Um, and there is a script. 
Um, but it, it's largely, again, because when we did Python, we saw it as a sort of, you know, it had to be well, it had to be well shot, and therefore it's well shot, you've got to give people their, the camera team and everyone their instructions as to where they've got to be at any one time. Mm. Then it makes it look as though it's kind of fairly chaotic, but you've got to capture the chaos. Mm. So, so in that way, we were sort of, we were being, you know, very strictly um, controlled whilst being off, completely off the wall most of the time. Where did music sit? Within Python, because you know we we got you have those little excerpts in between where there's sometimes a piece yeah. of music. There's there's songs, yeah. you know, within some of the sketches. When you're writing, were you listen, you know was music around? Because it was such at the time, Python and music seemed to be you were almost kind of these sort of parallel rock stars, you know, in terms of what was going on. Because yeah. you were you were very much rock stars of your time when that was all happening, and you had these relationships with you know with George Harrison and things like that. It was it yeah. seemed to be a really kind of collaborative world in a way well we, you know we weren't we weren't particularly musical that's trouble eric was quite good eric could play the guitar and terry could play the guitar a bit <laughs> in rather <laughs> affecting lovely ways <laughs> hit all the keys at, all, <laughs> at the right time in the right order but that was it uh, john uh, confessed, I mean, absolutely, he couldn't sing a, a note in tune. So, I mean, we weren't, we weren't any threat to the Beatles at the time. Um, but so music was important. Terry Gilliam, you saw that little clip from Terry Gilliam's animation. Now, that Terry, Terry loved to have music in there, and he was a great one. He would find bits of, bits of music, old jazz, whatever, and put it in. Uh, how, how we used it beyond that, it just we 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 couldn't afford to get music that was in copyright, mm -hmm. so we went to library music. A lot of it is just library music. I can't remember who the company was that did the library music. Anyway, we we would just find out little bits that that fitted. Um, so it, it, yes, it was important. It was important to have it there, but it wasn't a sort of it wasn't a, it wasn't something we felt completely comfortable mm. with. What about in terms of writing those songs that were in sketches, you know, whether it's the Lumberjack yeah. song or uh, well, how would those... Yeah, that's interesting because the Lumberjack song, I mean, that, um, that sketch rose out of a day in which Terry and I had been um, sort of uh, battling on with this sketch about a homicidal barber, um, you know, someone who's cutting hair which had not really been allowed anywhere near <laughs> blades or knives of any kind but he was a hairdresser so he was trying to control himself cutting 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 <laughs> and um, where does it go from there we just didn't know and then suddenly we said well let's go into a song what kind of song or he could perhaps say oh, you know, I you know I didn't want to be a hairdresser anywhere you know I wanted to be a lumberjack and that came up and then it sort of developed um, into a song which mm -hmm. Terry and I kind of ad-libbed the sort of, you know, the beat, the sound we wanted. But we couldn't write that because we couldn't write music. So we bring up Fred Tomlinson. And Fred, uh, of the Fred Tomlinson singers, um, who did a lot of the background work and were the chorus in, um, in Lumberjack Song and all that, uh, we hum it down the phone and Fred would put music onto it, actually write, it, write the music out, and then he would play it back to us and say, yeah, that, that's what we like. Yeah. And that's how Lumberjack's song was written. So we owe Fred an enormous debt. We, we just hum it down the phone, literally, at the end of the day, before we went to the pub, having written the sketch. And it wants to be a bit like this, sort of, Fred, you know, quite jolly. Okay, yes, all right, do it. Next morning it was there.
Um, I've got a piece of music I'm going to play for you, actually, which um, I'm hoping it's going to work. I saw him in the corner shop Buying balsa wood and glue Asking the assistant For model kit number two Then happy as a sandman Run running to his hobby room High above the pretty people Busy making friends, busy making friends He can build airplanes, make little wooden trains That's the life he understands His scene is a shell that is made by himself For he's very good with his hands He's very good, very, very good, very good with his hands There's no need to laugh when you see is very good with his hands he's very good very very good very good with his hands that was so nice to yeah to listen to that tell me a little bit about barry booth and well, writing those it was about a year or so two years before python about 1967 i suppose we um we met barry booth i can't remember quite why but anyway barry was a lovely northern guy clever musician and he, uh, he was a curious character. He was in the Household Cavalry um, band, yeah. but he played piano. <laughs> so there was no way you're going to get a piano on a horse. <laughs> so he had a lot of time off. So he wrote, <laughs> he wrote this nice thought, isn't it? Actually, yeah. Just imagine him up there with a key yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh dear, Pony um, Express. Anyway, um, so he 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 wrote music, and he um, was working for uh, an arm uh, but yeah, is that A&R? Yeah, the people come over from America. No, it's not A&R. And he would arrange their music for them on tours and, and that sort of thing. And Roy Orbison came over, of course. Roy Orbison was an enormous hero. And he said, Barry said, oh, write something, you know, write, write something for Roy, I'll play it to him. You know, they'll like, like record it, and then you'll be millionaires. So we worked at it, and I wrote a song called The Last Time I Saw You Was Tomorrow, which I thought was a dead search. You know? <laughs> <laughs> The night is dark, I stand alone Waiting for the train to take me home I see you, I hear you Promising your love to someone new And you're kissing him goodnight Like you kissed me The last time I saw you was tomorrow So close to someone I'd never seen before And, um, and Barry put um, the music to it and, and he said that I played it, I played it, I played it to Roy in his hotel room. I said, what, what happened? He said, I don't think he noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Uh, we didn't make millions, but he then said to Terry and myself, if you, if you want to write some songs, I'd love to put them to music. And so we wrote, um, I don't know, seven or eight songs each. And he, he put a delightful little, it's a lovely music he put to it, very gentle, very interesting. Um, and some of the songs, especially Terry's, are very, very sad after the war. It's an absolutely beautiful song and very sad. Anyway, we, it was made into an album called Diversions. And it sold about 200 copies, I think. Um, um, but on the other hand, John Peel was the only person that played it on the radio, but that was quite something mm -hmm. to have John Peel play it for you. And he played this one, the one you've just chosen, very good with his hands. Um, but we still only sold 200. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, I've been listening to it more recently, and I think this is what happens as you get older. You look back on your stuff and you're perhaps slightly less critical sometimes of things you're worried about. Mm -hmm. Because this was out of the mainstream of the work we were doing, the comedy and all that, we kind of forgot about it. But listening to, to the songs on diversions again now, uh, there's, some lovely, there's some lovely stuff. Yeah, and, it's, um, it's great storytelling and beautiful melodies as yes, well. Yeah, lovely melodies, not what you expect at all. Uh, it was slightly, it was slightly McCartney-esque. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a Sgt. Pepper's-y type thing, yes, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. It's on Spotify, if you want to go and listen to it, everybody. What? The album's on Spotify. If people yes, no, is it? Yeah. Yes, good. Definitely. Yeah. Get some streams yeah. out there for yeah, them. I, I yeah, I wrote a bit about it in my, um, on my website recently, because uh, Barry sadly died about oh, a sorry. year ago. He was just a wonderful man. Mm. Um, he lived life very, to the full, yeah. right to the end. Laughter, terrific laughter. <laughs> terrific drinker. <laughs> terrific smoker. <laughs> so, you know. He challenged God to keep him going. <laughs> yeah. He said, I don't mind, I'll just keep going and I'll stop sometime. You know, it. Well, it's lovely to get the chance to play that today. Thank you. Um, I know you, you, you're a fan of music because I've heard you talk brilliantly about um, Duke Ellington, being a fan right. of Duke Ellington, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. Elvis being the first artist that you discovered yourself, you know, yes. where it's that thing where you always have your, you know, you have your parents' record collection and so yeah. you... You sort of, you know, you absorb that. But in terms yeah. of the choices that you made, Elvis being one of the first artists that you discovered for yourself. I think it was because uh, Elvis did sound very different to almost everybody else. I mean, there'd been Johnny Ray just before that. Johnny Ray had done something called Walking in the Rain. Walking in the Rain, getting soaking wet. And he, he choked a little bit as he did it. Big rain. Uh, big rain. <laughs> and then along came Elvis with Heartbreak Hotel, you know, and all that. <laughs> and what, what really made it mine was that at home, my father would listen to Bach or things like that. And when he heard music like that, whether it was Johnny Ray or Elvis, he assumed something was wrong with them and they shouldn't have been in the recording studio <laughs> on that particular day because they had obviously had nasal problems and a sore throat and all that. So no, that's the way it's meant to be. And he just looked at me pitying me and said, Don't, that can't be true. And that's when I knew that, that Elvis was the man for me. You know, he was different, he was odd, and he was disliked totally. Not disliked, I don't think it was disliked. It was just sort of pitying me sort of... Um, um, you, you know, uh, my father felt sorry for me for listening to that sort of thing. And, and you know, he knew that Elvis would never get anywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. sort of, he did in the end do a bit. Did you ever do that with your kids where they started listening to stuff and you were like, oh. Yes, I, I probably did. I probably did, yeah, yeah. 
Um, I think that's sort of natural. <laughs> yeah. But I think you become very loyal to your kind of period of music. And, and for me, music has been very much attached to different periods of my life. Mm -hmm. And when I first heard Elvis and things like that, it was just about going to school. And I, I went away to school when I was 13, to boarding school. And uh, listening to pop music was not really encouraged. So we used to listen to Radio Luxembourg late at night, you know, so in the dormitory, someone would have a crackly radio. And all the songs you heard were broken up with crackles mm. and distortion and the, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the sound would fade and then come back and all that. But that's, you know, Roy Orbison, um, Elvis, Johnny Cash, um, all those people. Yeah. And then in my, uh, my year at school, we were all divided into different houses. And there was one person in my house, 60 boys in my house, who, who was a bit of a character. And he was allowed to play music uh, different times for everybody else because he was a favorite of the housemaster. And he was a man called John Ravenscroft later John, John Peel. Peel and he had a study then he would play all these uh, these wonderful Eddie Cochran and things like that and so I remember you know, that those those songs then were a kind of breakout from mm. or where what I'd been brought up with which are mainly sort of hymns and bark and all that sort of stuff here was something that that we were discovering together mm. and it was music was sort of changing then and rock and roll was was coming in and all that and many many different sort of influences and those Buddy Holly and all this sort of thing. It was incredibly exciting. So I, I, I still listen to that kind of music yeah. quite often because it it, it, it it speaks to that time of my life. What a lovely full circle as well that John then played music that you wrote on. Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, in terms that was, of that's a lovely yeah, yeah. circle of... Yeah, that, that, yeah. that was nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he sort of taught me a lot. I mentioned earlier about you, you know, Python being the kind of almost sort of their own sort of version of rock stars in that, in that era. And there was some, um, when I was kind of watching back videos of interviews and things of you and someone flashed up a picture of you with like Led Zeppelin and um, you were talking about you'd been to Studio 54, which I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. But it was an exciting time. And it was, it was, there was so much going on with, with art, with music, with, you know, comedy and TV and film. It was it was yeah. a really exciting time for it. Uh, it was, uh, and I think that comedy and the kind of comedy we were doing and, and music seemed to sort of coexist together. And I, I remember hearing that when Python first came out, there were two things that happened. I would, I'm talking about the Beatles here, our heroes, mm -hmm. that Paul McCartney would actually pause a recording session with his full orchestra and all that if Monty Python was on, and everyone would have to sit and watch Monty Python. And which, I mean, you know how much it costs to keep an orchestra in the studio. So that was, that was money well spent. Um, <laughs> money spent. And then the other thing of, was, which George told me much later on, which was that George Harrison had sent a message to the BBC after the first show, saying, you know, um, how great it was. And, and uh, it had never got through to us. And no one can work out quite why, except for the fact that, that the note said on the top, George Harris, from George Harrison to the Pythons. And the you know, BBC security at that time, you know, well, yeah, George Harrison, you know, and I'm the Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> 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 oh, but see, it never got through, um, but we heard wow. later. Uh, but anyway, they, they, they responded to what we were doing because of, you know, they felt there was a sort of kinship there. 
and a lot of touring bands took bits of Python. I think because it was, you know, in that town, it sounds very pretentious, but Python was sort of put together like a bit of music. It wasn't stop, stop, start, stop, start. It was a, you know, the whole thing flows in mm -hmm. a certain way. That sometimes slow and then it speeds up and then Gilliam has his quick little bit there. So it is, I think it has a sort of musical feel to it. And also that we were trying to do things which no one had done before in quite the same way in television comedy. And this was, of course, the great thing about the 60s. Everyone was trying things that had never been done before, whether it was Mary Quant in fashion or, you know, mm -hmm. cars and all that sort of thing. We were doing it with music, with, uh, with comedy. And, and that seemed to find a response with proper musicians, of whom we were rather great fans. When you were moving on to the next thing after Python, was it kind of, was that an easy transition into what you were going to do after that in terms of where you were, you know? What... Yeah, well, I never knew quite where I was going, really. I mean, I, I thought of my talents, not much. I mean, I can act a bit and I can write some comedy, but having worked with Python, you somehow felt you'd you took not written yourself out, but there would never be su quite such a, a creative period in such a short time as there was in those four years of Python. That's all I mean, it was. Four yeah, years. I mean, really, basically. Wow. We went on to do the films yeah. later, but in, the, you know, in terms of forty-five television shows were written in about three years before John got bored and went off and all that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, <laughs> be fair to John, he felt he'd done as much as he could, and we'd done as much as we could. But I loved, I loved working, I loved the sort of characters I could play and all that. And so, you know, we went on later to the Ripping Yarns, Terry and myself, but we had to make sure that what we were producing was something that didn't look like Python light. Um, it had to be something that had its own distinct mm -hmm. character. And so we decided to write these Ripping Yarns, these stories about sort of pluck and heroism based on the sort of books of the 20s and 30s. And, Biggles and all that, and and it was that was quite difficult because for a start, I, I remember what we did with the ripping yarns, some of which are really good, at that, but we got actors in rather than um, using pythons or anything like that because we couldn't, and some actors, brilliant though they were, just didn't get <laughs> yeah. the comedy mm -hmm. and didn't couldn't play the silliness or whatever or the lightness of touch sometimes a bit heavy. Um, some were absolutely brilliant, but that, that, was a, that was a problem. And it occurred to me, you know, when we were doing the first few ripping yards, that I should have had the pythons. If all the pythons were here doing it, we could have all those characters covered. Because all the pythons could play great, great Multiple characters. Multiple characters. Yeah. And that was one of the great joys of doing Python. And, and we were later reunited to do the films like Life of Brian and, and, and Holy Grail, where we could all play about 10 or 12 <laughs> characters. And that's what I, that's what I really enjoyed. That was, was fun and it was sort of a free, a creative freedom, yeah. both in acting and writing. I've got a couple of um, Ripping Yarns clips oh, for you. thank you very much. Um, this is a great one. In terms of talking about an actor who definitely did get the comedic timing, the, the actor who plays your father in this particular oh, scene yes. is very, yes. very good. <laughs> I think I know. It was always raining in Denley Moor, except on days when it were fine, and there weren't many of them, not if you include drizzle as rain. And even if it weren't drizzling, it were overcast, and there were a lot of moisture in the air. 
come home damp, as if it had been raining, even though there hadn't actually been evidence of precipitation in the rain gauge outside the town hall. And the humidity level on the weather chart was constant for the entire period, despite... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Kind of uh, nice opportunity to create a character and and play with it over a long space space of time, yeah. you know, over over multiple episodes. Yeah, yeah, and and it's nice to play a character who's completely dull, completely <laughs> and utterly dull thing, and yet make it the centre of, uh, of of the whole story. That's the, that's what I quite enjoyed. Um, Was it a different writing process? Was it a different experience in terms of writing? Ripping yarns, as a, you know, you talk about this mm. sort of a, almost kind of communal writing experience yeah. for for Python, but yes, because I was just writing with Terry, and by that time, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's a, a small point. We both had young families, so the idea of meeting up together in each other's houses all the time didn't quite work out. You know, so oh, we got to take them to the doctor for this or that. And uh, so we, we tended to write separately and then get together, which was the way our, our writing relationship developed. So it would mean that people would have more, either of us would have quite a run at something. Mm -hmm. And with something like Eric Althwaite, I just got the character. And instead of us getting together and then me saying, look, where do we go with this character? I thought, well, I'll just take it on as long as I can. I'm not seeing Terry till Friday. It's now Tuesday, therefore... <laughs> I can write a few more scenes, and that's that's really how it happened. So they were much more sort of um, individually authored, the ripping yarns. Um, there was um, the curse of the claw. Uh, I think it was Terry's. Um, yeah, and that that was he wrote a large chunk of that. Roger of the Raj was something that I started and, and, and went on to, and then Terry developed later. And what about like the, the little the little introduction music that you hear at the yes. start, which is obviously a known piece, but it's it's tweaked. It's it's given that comedic yeah. moment, you know, where it's kind of which, yeah. which means that it has ownership. Ripping Yarns has ownership of it in a way because it fits in with what. Yes, that is. it does fit, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, it just seems that it was written for that. And of course, it wasn't. Again, it was library music. Couldn't afford any specially written music. I don't think for them. No, we didn't. Um, it would just be probably the director would find that, mm -hmm. that bit of music and put it. Um, Jim Franklin had done a lot of work. He was, he was good on that sort of thing. Yeah. It's just that bum note at the end. It's know, it just works so yeah. perfectly. Yeah. It's so great. Well, we might have got someone to play that, I suppose, <laughs> a version of it. No. Um, this is a, a short one from Ripping Your Eyes, but I, this is one of my favourites. I love this one. Eight one. <laughs> Eight bloody one. I'm sorry, love. 
was um, that was very prescient, wasn't it? Really, being a Sheffield United supporter. <laughs> Uh, but it always went downhill. But anyway, yeah, yeah. You were, were you always writing for yourself? So would you write the characters that you would play? Yes, that's interesting. I mean, that was largely the way it was. And, yeah. and with Python as well. If you look at the Python sketches, generally speaking, um, if there's a main, strong main character in a sketch, it would have been written by that person. They could, they could play it. Not all together, but as a rule, that would be... That would, you know, tend to be the way it was. I mean, John would always play the slightly sort of, you know, tall, cross, angry, <laughs> overbearing people like, you know, the man in the pet shop yeah. and all that. Yeah. So, and then he, I would then, although I didn't write pet shop with John, Graham wrote it with him, but I would, I was the best to fit in as the, the one who sort of was, it irritated him most of all, you know. <laughs> So the two work, work very well together, yeah. you know, his sort of um, demands and his sort of, um, you know, the way, he, the way he sort of behaved and me sort of making excuses for the most pathetic things all the time. But it used to make him quite irritated. And that was the, that was the energy of the sketch yeah. came from the irritation of this man. And I mean, John went on to, to, do, to do Faulty Towers, which is all about irritation. It's about him being irritated. And he plays being irritated very, very well. <laughs> because he is constantly... Such a good actor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, with the, yeah. but it was funny because when you said earlier on, you're like, you know, I do a bit of, did a bit of writing, I did a bit of acting, I did a bit of mm. comedy. When you fill out a form for anything that says occupation, what do you write down on it? Um, well, that's good. I, I, I've taken, I, I used to <laughs> put down, um, I don't know what I put down, I put writer for a bit, because mm -hmm. I thought that was something to aspire to, <laughs> rather more than acting, and I'm ashamed to say that, because acting is a wonderful profession. But um, I, I do writer for a bit, and then I had some real problems with visas later on, going to foreign countries, because in some countries, writer means... Journalist. You know, journalist, mm -hmm. which means terrorist or troubled, you know. Yeah, so you got exposing to be us, yeah. And I had some real problems that um, I think we were taking the family to Sierra Leone for a holiday. And they said, yes, your visas have come through. Um, the whole family can go, but you can't. I said, well, <laughs> I think probably... Um, I have my good days, I have my bad days, but I think they probably want me to be there. <laughs> so we had to change it, and I, I put actor, and that's fine. Actor means general idiot, you know. And Surely once, you could just put Python down there. You know? Python, yes. Well, <laughs> it's like yeah. yes. entrance into every country in the world. Yes, but you probably, <laughs> probably have to be sort of, you know, put straight into a zoo. <laughs> what do you get there? <laughs> Snake. Yeah. But it was, it was the... Um, it worked very well once. I remember in Spain, as an actor, you get different reactions from people. And I was stuck in somewhere in Spain and, and had to get a train to Madrid. And it was very early in the morning. And the only people, the hotel said, the only people who could get out to take you to the train are the police who were sort of out on night duty. So at 5.30, the police turn up. And they're a bit like that, you know. Passport to your passport, and I pass on. And I act, act, all, act, all, act, all. What you, who you, who you act? Where you act? Who you act with? I said, well, I've just made a film called Fish Called Wonder. Oh, yeah, what's that? What's that? Oh, who in it? Who in it? And I said, Kevin Klein, Jamie Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis. 
you act with Jamie Lee Curtis? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, what, 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 what do you have to do? I said, oh, you know, all sorts of things. <laughs> we had a very long kiss. I said that. Oh, well, could you kiss Jamie Lee Curtis? <laughs> we'll take you anywhere in Spain, you know? So, so, so. <laughs> it's definitely the one to choose, actor rather than writer. And since then, I'm, I've, if I'm being sort of rather pedantic, it's called people put me down as broadcaster. <laughs> yeah, <now>. broadcaster. <laughs> what mention of fish called Wanda? What do you what do you remember about making that film, and how much how much input did you have in, into the creation of that character? I mean, I know there was a script, obviously, but bringing yeah. him to life. Well, I, I, John had come to me saying that he was writing a script. Um, uh, uh, about a heist in which one of the main characters had a, a, a lot of the information but unfortunately had a stammer so it took him a long time to get the information out um, and he knew that my father had a stammer um, he'd met my dad and he said can you tell me what how you would play someone with a stammer I mean it can't just be blah, 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 blah. I said no no there are lots of variations I know you know um, my father could sing without a um, without a stammer, and obviously the more you're under psychological pressure, the more you stammer. So John liked all that, and put it all in the script, and, and asked me to play play the character. Um, so that's that's how that came about. I, I don't think I would have played that character if my father had been still alive. I think it would have been almost too, too painful. Um, and it was already, uh, as it was, Various stammerers were, were divided. Some felt, you know, it was it was good that they were, you know, someone with a stammer was portrayed in a in a mainstream mm-hmm. film as some sort of person who is a who you know, stammerers exist, and also that actually he was one of the least nasty characters in the whole thing. But that was immaterial. Others said you shouldn't have done it. Um, you know, shouldn't have played someone with a stammer like that. It's just going to make stammerers more exposed um, to ridicule and all that. But that, that didn't really, that, that, that was a sort of minority view. Mm-hmm. And someone came to me who had a stammer, um, and it was a, a Londoner, and he said, I, um, I'm starting this organization mm-hmm. called uh, Research in Stammering in Children, and would you be interested in helping out? And short story was I, I did, I was interested, I was fascinated to f- try and learn more about how my father had a stammer. And so we, the Michael Palin Stammering Center was, was founded in 1992, and it's been really good. I mean, it's one of the most things I'm most proud of in my entire life is to have got that going, and they've um, helped thousands of children to sort of deal with, deal with stammers. Um, so, you know, things turn yeah. out. What a lovely thing to come in the out end, of playing a part. Yeah, in the end, in fact, I based it on my dad. It worked out and, and I learned things which I wish he'd have known or his parents would have known mm. when he was young. It's all about parents. Yeah. Usually. Was there a point where you saw yourself as an actor, where you started to see yourself as an actor? Um, well, I, I enjoyed acting from very early on. I don't mm-hmm. know, school productions and all that. I, uh, yeah. My first, <laughs> my first appearance ever was on Chroma Pier. <laughs> we were on holiday in Norfolk, and we went to the end of the pier show or something like that with my mum. One of my earliest memories, and uh, there was a magician on stage, and he was doing things, and he had a glamorous assistant who was handing him things and all that. And then he said, "Now I want." And any children here in the audience want to come and help me? I said, "Yes." I just I can remember saying yes. 
I wouldn't have done that any time after that, but I said yes. And I went up and, and went on stage. And um, he, was, he, he was blindfolded. And he said, now you've got to hand me these rings and I'm going to sort of tie them all together and then escape and all that. So as I handed him the rings, I did what I'd seen the, the glamorous assistant do, which was a little <laughs> bit of sort of this twirly bit, before handing them to him. And I did this a little bit, and then I heard right the side of his mouth, said, stop looking about. <laughs> and I realized that was, uh, I shouldn't have done that. And, and, and I think that was the moment when I realized that acting wasn't going to be easy. <laughs> but the fact that I wanted to get up there, and I must have been five years old, wow. six years old, and I wanted to go and do it. And so I've been, there's an ex, uh, definitely an exhibitionist streak in me, but also one of, ex I get very nervous about the prospect of acting sometimes. Let's talk a little bit about um, GBH because it's, I mean, now it feels like it's, it's, it's an incredible piece of TV, really, in terms of it was. It was, yeah. It, you know, it was, and it, it still is, you know, and it stands the test of time as well. But and how was this presented to you? Because it's a different side to you that we, you know, that from what we've seen before. Yes. Um... Well, there weren't many things around like of that quality, and Bleasdale was top of his game, you know, mm. the voice and the black stuff and all that. And so when I heard um, that he, he wanted me to be one of the characters in a new thing he was writing called GBH, I, I was, you know, incredibly sort of um, pleased and honoured that he should even think of me doing it. And the... I went to see him anyway and got on very well. He's, he's a lovely, amiable, big, sort of gruff, <laughs> funny man, full of all sorts of, you know, problems about you know, travelling over bridges and, and he's a complete hypochondriac and all that. <laughs> anyway, he said, yeah, and, and I was going to play the Michael Murray character. That's what he wanted me to do. Um, and the other character, the school teacher, was going to be, I think, I can't remember what, how that was, um, Anyway, it turned out that he had wanted um, he, he'd, he'd wanted Robert Lindsay to play the Michael Murray character, and, and Lindsay had agreed to do it, but then he got a, an offer of a job on Broadway, decided mm -hmm. to go to Broadway. And so I think what they were going to do was I was going to play him, and Billy Connolly was going to play the other role. And then uh, Billy couldn't do it. Uh, Robert Lindsay's show in Broadway fell through, so he came back, and, uh, and, and poor Alan, he, he sort of was a bit softy really, he kept, rang up and said, I'm really sorry, really sorry, but you know, Lindsay's back on the, the scene, and uh, I promised him the part, and would you mind, uh, you know, playing the school teacher? And I, I said, yeah, of course not, they're two terrific parts. Mm. And so that's how it happened. Wow. And uh, I can't imagine it the other way around, really, mm. I mean, seeing yeah, Robert's marvelous performance, and and your, yourself as well. This is uh, this is quite a long clip, but I really want to show it in its entirety. And Michael was saying earlier that when this clip's been shown, it's always been quite a short version of it. And so I wanted to show this complete monologue that you deliver because I just think it's an absolutely stunning piece of work, both in terms of the character, the writing, but your performance um, from from GBH. Do you want to set it up for people who haven't? Um, yeah, maybe. Well, we GBH, are. as you know, was sort of set in Liverpool, 
at a time when everything was breaking down in the city's organization and a small group of militants um, based around Derek Hatton um, were misusing, uh, uh, so Alan thought and most people thought, city funds to, um, you know, sort of for their, for their official cars and all that when people's rubbish wasn't being collected. They wanted to organize strikes um, to support their cause, and I played a school teacher who defied the strike because I was the I was the teacher at a special school, and I wasn't going to close down because of what I thought was thuggish behaviour. And in this scene, at the very end, they 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 get a meeting together, and um, uh, in the front row of this meeting, this is all about um, you know Derek Hatton, the Michael Murray character based on Derek Hatton, getting his way. And um, in, this, in the front row are all the thugs who have sort of been generally sort of um, uh, calling the shots earlier in the film and doing his dirty work for them. And I'm asked if I want to speak. And I haven't seen this for a long time. So, but basically, that's where the setup is. This is my moment where I can either shut up and go along with it, or I can say my... Um, my defiant speech. <laughs> I'm going to yes. watch it now. I might ask you all to consider how wonderful it is that I can hear myself speak, that I'm free to talk without you beating me black and blue, which is what you really want to do. And I'm only free to do so because someone else will beat you black and blue if you do. <laughs> now, I'm glad of that. Pleased that my friends, some of whom I hardly knew I had, came to my rescue. But I hate violence. I do. I hate it so much, whenever I see any, I have to join in. <laughs> I take after my father for that. I do. He was a hard man, harder than me, but he never touched me. One look from him, I was in hiding. My dad had no need to hit me, had my respect, had my love, never touched me. He was not a political man, my dad. Oh, he bought the Daily Herald, voted Labour. But he was never anyone's disciple. He did not believe in messiahs. I can see I'm not impressing you. Do you mind me talking down to you like this? You don't like being talked down to, do you? I don't know why. I could never talk up to you in a million years. But I'll come down to you if you want. Is that any better? Not that I expect that anything I can say to you will make any difference to you. I'm no missionary. I met a missionary once. He said it was an interesting position. <laughs> but I'm not talking to you, boys. Tonight I'm talking for me. And for all the people like me here tonight, for my father too, for all those of us who refuse to learn about life from manifestos and Marx and Das Kapital. Because that's your problem for me, you boys, isn't it? You've only read one book. You must have read that book and thought, right, that'll do for me, that's the book for me. I know about life now. Why not read two books? Read three. Get a rounded view of life instead of the flat earth version. You may come to the same conclusions you did from reading that one book. 
But is there any harm in knowing other things? Anyway, I don't care about you. I'd like to, I know I should, because you should never dismiss anyone. But you're only the puppets. And it's the puppet master I really want to examine. Because here we all are, living under the most reactionary, democratically elected government we've ever known, in a labour-controlled city, where all animals are equal, but some councillors are more equal than others, where too often lions are led by donkey jackets, living proof that the further left you go, the more right-wing you become. But we... 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 We have to behave with dignity and with honour and above all without corruption. Yeah. <laughs> Two wrongs do not make a right or a left, especially not a left. <laughs> Socialism is the redistribution not only of wealth but of care and concern and equality and decency and belief in humankind. I didn't intend, I didn't even expect to be able to say any of this tonight. But I suppose all I'm trying to remind everyone, myself included, <coughs> is that in the short time that we all have, we would want to be remembered for the good that we have done. Wouldn't we? Of course we would. That's right, isn't it, boys? That's mm -hmm. amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So good. I don't write them like that nowadays. It's amazing no, writing. Really don't. Yeah. It's a different experience doing more dramatic roles than it is comedy for you. Um. Well, I mean, you know, the the effect you're going for in in comedy is to make a joke work, <laughs> yeah. a comic situation work. So you're more aware of the sort of. Um, you know, the, 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 the narrow margins between something being not funny or not funny. When you're doing a dramatic thing like that, it's a, it's a, much, it's a wider picture and you've got a general feeling of how you should be presenting that. But they both require acting skills. I mean, I think Python tends to get... People ignore the fact that we, we did a lot of acting in Python. Yeah. We're quite good actors in Python. Um, and playing a comedy character requires all the sort of skills of convincing you, you know, of how the character ought to be, whether he's straight, whether he's comic, whatever, mm. how, he, how he sort of delivers the lines, which is as, as important as that. But that is a much more sustained, um, serious, you know, piece. But there's a lot of comedy in everything Alan does yeah. in Bleasdale. He can go to the bleakest places and the darkest places of, of, of experience, and yet he uses humour in there. There are plenty of the moments missionary in that. Line. Yeah, all yeah, the, the little, mission, little, missionary line, yeah. all the little things like that. Um, and um, I, don't, I don't know, I guess I get quite moved actually watching that. Because I think nowadays our present leader uses comedy um, for no effect at all. Uh, to enable him to say nothing. And there he's using comedy to try and really say something. Um, I'm going to take a left return to travel for a minute, if that's okay. Because it's been such a big part of your, your life. You know, you kind of, 
you didn't walk away from acting, but you kind of parked it for a bit to go and explore and mm. go and travel to incredible corners, parts yeah. of the world. And I know that as a kid, you'd be cut, had a kind of real sort of, you loved, you know, getting on the train and doing all that kind of thing. But what was the thing that made you start this part of your professional life into travel? Uh, well, there was, a, there was a sort of welling up of kind of demand for, <laughs> you know, seeing the world, mm -hmm. which hadn't been satisfied by the fact that, you know, I was born in... In Sheffield in the 50s and 40s, 50s, nobody travelled very far, you know, Bradford would be about as far as you go. So, and yet I loved reading about foreign countries. I loved the, the, um, the, the stories that were set in deserts and in the Arctic and places that I couldn't believe were on the same planet as where I lived, but I wanted to see them. So it was all there and, and I never expected any of it would ever come true. But it must have been... Um, a level of, of, of sort of unresolved expectation, which was there all the time. And it just needed the right moment to, to come out. And I believe in life you have certain moments where certain things happen that change the direction of your life. Maybe the smallest thing, um, and I'd done a lot of films in the, in the 1980s, just finished Fishball Wanda. There wasn't really anything around that was any good. Someone at the BBC says, you know, we've got this idea for around the world in 80 days. Would you like to be the person who goes and does the journey? And it, it was a long time away from home. The children were all going to school. I remember thinking, I don't know, why can I do this? You know, should I do this? Should I do this? And so it was very much a sort of snap decision that made me say, yes, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do mm. it. And I remember having said that worrying about how long I was going to be away, whether I could uh, have the strength to do it, whether I, whether I had anything to say, uh, how, just how it would work out. Was it just me saying yes because I wanted to see different parts of the world? Or was there something I could do with it? So it was, a, it was kind of one, one of those moments where I was uh, feeling um, I'd gone out on a limb here. We'll just see where it takes me. And, and this particular limb took me quite a long way. Once you pop, you can't stop, basically. <laughs> you just yeah, went yes. out. I mean, yeah. it's been amazing yeah. to watch. And it's, but I think that the way that you, you approach it is we feel like we're on the journey with you because you, you've got mm. such a great way with, with just people that you meet. You're inquisitive and you're interested in them and their culture mm. and their music and their dance and yeah, you know, I mean, all that side I, of it. I've always... Uh, I've always been interested in, in anything that's going on in the world. And I'm just, still, I find I get up in the morning, I'm fascinated by whatever's happening. Even if it's just out in the garden. What are the sparrows doing today? Why have they all arrived today and not tomorrow and all that sort of stuff? So I'm very, I'm very much aware of things and, and, and I, I get a lot of stimulation from just hearing, you know, what's happening, talking to people, meeting people. Um, so that was there anyway. And I realized that, uh, with the with the journeys, what I had to do away with was any sort of artifice. Mm -hmm. And to start with, I felt I didn't know how to deal with that. I, I felt I perhaps should be, should I be a reporter behaving like that? Should I be an actor portraying somebody going around the world? And in the end, I just settled for being me and bumbling through, but responding to people um, and the way. I found I could do quite easily, just out of, because I was curious, 
and I was fascinated to learn about their lives. And, and so that's, I think, what, what sort of kept it going and kept me going in it. Once I realized that I could do without that artifice, I didn't have to be, mm. um, pretend to be something just for the series. Yeah. I could just be myself, and yet people still watched. That was, a, that, that was amazing. But that was, I think, the secret of it was that I was, I was easy with people. And I was curious, as you say, and you, about you, everything. I you, mean, I'm yeah. so fortunate to be, to be able to see so much of the world and be shown so much of the world. By the people in the place that you're there. Yes, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And I found also that I, I, could, I could talk to people um, even though I didn't know the language. In most countries, I didn't know the language at all. But somehow we sort of made, a, made contact. I uh, remember a Tibetan yak herder, the scene we went to his yurt, and I mean, didn't speak a word of English. I didn't speak a word of uh, of Tibetan, um, uh, and yet we spent about fifty minutes talking about the children in his yurt and all that, and his wife making butter. And I was sort of, you know, and, and, and talking about how the children behave, and one's always naughty when a guest <laughs> comes round, the other's terribly creepy and nice, and all that sort of thing. And we had this quite complicated discussion, and we sort of knew what each other was saying. I think, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> he kept laughing, so I thought that was all right. Yes, yeah. You, Get you, him out of my ears, <laughs> quick. The the natural kind of reaction that you have to things where you're where you say you're not trying to put on a fake response to anything. It's always genuinely how you would respond. And sometimes that's throwing yourself into a situation. Sometimes it's being slightly apprehensive about things, like when they were trying to get you to do karaoke and sing You Are My Sunshine. I love, I don't have the clip, unfortunately, (laughs) but that will be on the podcast. But I love that. You absolutely leave up to that poor woman to sing that entire song. You literally come in for three words, you. Off you go. It's not kind of you're not uh, you're not it's not I'm not you're not up for everything with full enthusiasm. It's mm. a genuine response to everything, and I love yeah. that because it's light and shade with things. Yeah, can't yeah. always I, be a hundred percent into something. Yeah, yeah. But I can remember moments of music uh, that I, um, um, in in um, Mali in Bamako. Yeah, uh, Tumani Dibate played this fantastic instrument, twenty-one string chorus, they called it something like mm-hmm. that. And I, I just felt, I just I was so moved just sitting there and him playing this. Um, and though I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm no great singer, but I love music and I, I, I find the effect of music, being affected by music is one of those wonderful things that sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. Mm-hmm. It happened that day. And that was about as far away from doing karaoke in Tokyo as just to hearing somebody play a beautiful instrument so sensitively. And just me sitting there, and, and I just, he wasn't in a concert hall or anything like that. It was just me and him together, and oh, the 42 members of the crew. <laughs> uh, just a small group of us together listening to that. And that, that I felt, God, and that, one of the many moments where I felt I am so fucking lucky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the last, is the last travel stage you did um, before COVID was the North Korea? Was that the last yes. one? Yeah, yeah. Um, which was fantastic. And there's a really brilliant music moment in that where you're 
where you're um, witnessing this kind of weird alarm call that is yeah. is is played yes. across mm. um, yeah. Young Pang every yeah. morning, and yeah. it's it's hypnotic. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah, and you've got such a great way of describing your genuine response to this mm. kind of crazy sound that's coming out through. Yeah, that's. I that mean, was everything was odd in North Korea, <laughs> yeah. but but to to I couldn't. Yeah, I woke up at five in the morning. I think the first morning there, and there was this strange hum. And then I realised it was a slightly. It was musical. There was somebody mm. playing it somewhere, and I couldn't find anywhere. It wasn't. In the room, it wasn't coming through the ceiling. I went to the window, I couldn't see anything. And then um, it stopped. And then at six o'clock, it started again. And I woke up again. And I thought, this must be jet lag or whatever it is. I'm, my mind's not quite. And so eventually, I mean, none of us knew and the crew knew what was happening. And it's only later when we were told that there, there are speakers all over the city, all over Pyongyang, playing this music, which is called Dear, Dear, uh, Good Morning, Dear General, or something like that, which is played to not just to wake people up, but to motivate them. And music is used like that in North Korea everywhere. There are lots of women singing and dancing and doing marches. All, it's all geared to the party, to the, to, uh, the greater production of the of the state to help the workers work and all that. So they do have music which is played just to entertain, but mainly it's there with a a purely functional purpose of getting people to work and making them feel better as they go to work. Mm. Do you know what's next? Um, You know, we're coming slowly out of this crazy situation that the entire world's been in. Yeah, yeah. And it's great to see you well and recovered from your... Your heart operation as well? Yeah, yes. No, my heart feels um, better than ever. As I said on my website, I said it, the funny thing was after I was, I, I finished having the operation to um, repair two valves in my heart, that my body was no longer created by Mr. and Mrs. Palin. It was created <laughs> by Mr. and Mrs. Palin and Edward's life sciences of, uh, uh, of uh, California. And <laughs> um, since then, Edward's Life Sciences found this on my website and want me to go over and talk to them and tell them. Yeah, because... Uh, Here we go, it's a trip. It's Travel, a trip. there we go, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Take heart. But, uh, no, that's... Um, I mean, uh, yeah, that's that's great. But I've been at home, really, because all, all travel has been so disrupted. Yes. Yeah. But I'm working on a book about my great-uncle Harry, who was killed on the Somme in 2016. Uh, <laughs> 1960. <laughs> Sorry, he was, he was a tourist. He was having a, a very, uh, the only person to be killed on the Somme this uh, this century. Actually, <laughs> there's a story, isn't there? <laughs> um, anyway, um, no, it was uh, 1916, and he lived from. He was born in 1884, um, died in 1916, and that short period of his life sort of covered. And a most dramatic period in history. He was probably born at a time when the Victorian imperialist, sort of British imperial adventure was at its height, you know, mm. and we had the strongest army, the strongest navy, and all that. It ends, you know, in the mud. He was blown apart in the mud in, in, in Flanders in 1916. So it's, it's the, the arc of that life that I'm quite interested in. And he was, a, he was an interesting character. He was a, as far as I can see, most things he touched were disastrous. So he was, a, he, was no, he was no hero, really. But he was an ordinary bloke caught up in 
times where I think that were quite extraordinary. And he was expected to behave in a certain way mm. as a sort of paragon of the, the, all the English virtues. And he, he didn't, he couldn't do it. Anyway, so Sounds it's, like it's a good a film fun as well. book, yes. It's a, yeah, <laughs> book yeah. and then screenplay by the sounds of it as well. It would be a great film. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. good. Well, um, you can, you can do the music. Well, I, I, I can't do the music, but I can definitely give you some suggestions. No, but you're brilliant. I think that's a great skill to be able to choose music. And I love, I love, I mean, there's so many things I'd like to have done with music that I've enjoyed. Um, but mostly you can't do it publicly because of, again, copyright yeah. and all that. But knowing what music to put with what particular scene or what particular feeling you want to create is is so key and, and, and there's such a huge amount to choose from yeah. that those who get it right, I think, uh, re really I admire hugely. When it's right, it's really, really yeah. powerful. Yeah. Um, do you have, it's the hardest question in the world that I can never answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, do you have a piece of music that you go back to more than others? Do you have a go-to track? Um, well, uh, oddly enough, uh, one which always satisfies me, and I, I first heard it in the 1970s, is the Kate and Nanny McGarrigal. Um, I don't know if you know their album. No, but, but I know. Um, I know. Um, uh, take me back to Montecino. It's it's it, it's a most beautiful album, and I, I I find that music, their music, their beautiful, delicate harmonies and voices, and lovely songs, very very moving. It's it's kind of. It's not diversions, but it's going in that sort of direction. But it's so melodic and harmonious and beautiful. And and I, if I, if I ever just want to be reassured by music, I've listened to or listened to Kate Nanny McGarrigal. something about siblings voices the synergy yeah. between them that you can't replicate with non sort of yeah no um, their 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 voices are just beautiful mm. the, what they do with them the expression in the voice especially some of the sort of you know the heartbreaking sort of little melodies and all that there's always humor there was always fun there mm. but they can also play you know this deep deep sadness and make it make it something that affects you and moves you mm. Um, we've run out of time, I'm afraid. I could, as you could hear, I'd probably talk to oh, you for another yeah. three You're hours. You're still here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for coming up to Bradford to, to do this. It's been you an absolute lovely. treat. The wonderful Sir Michael Palin, everyone. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Everyone says the same Though they can't remember his name He's neatly filed and placed As the man with very poor taste He lives in a yellow semi With a purple striped front door His son is green and his wife is pink She works all day at a bright red sink And she doesn't wear a hat in church Everyone says the same Though they can't remember his name He's neatly filed and placed As the man with very poor taste from the album Diversions by Michael, Barry Booth and Terry Jones, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with, oh, all right, I'm going to say it again, despite my better judgment, the national treasure that is Sir Michael Palin. My huge thanks to Michael uh, for taking the time to talk to us in Bradford. What makes it all the more special is that he wasn't promoting anything. He just fancied a day out, back up in his old manner, having a conversation and I really hope that he enjoyed it because I know that I did and from the reaction that I've had from the audience they had an absolutely wonderful, wonderful experience and that kind of just tells you even a little bit about the type of fellow that he is. However, what we can tell you is that you can hear every single episode of Soundtracking at edithbowman.com and you can follow us on our social media channels as well. We are at Soundtracking UK. We love hearing from you. We love hearing your response to the episodes, whether you're listening to this brand new episode or whether you've maybe um, jumped back into a previous episode. Maybe you want to listen to the previous episodes with Todd Haynes or Edgar Wright before you hear their new episodes. Anyway, join me next week for another episode of Soundtracking where I dive into the wonderful creative minds from the world of film, music and TV. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Yeah.